about season five because overall it feels like a much darker season than most of what we've seen so far, just in general. There's been a lot of fairly serious, fairly you know mature, fairly dark themes going throughout several of these episodes. Uh, this is funny because the season ender for season five, you might say, is, is following through on that. Some people might disagree with that, including me, but I don't want to get too much into that episode here. I mention it, though, especially in light of this specific episode. This is not the darkest and most horrifying episode in in the Star Trek Voyager, in my opinion. It is the second most horrifying and, and terrifying and just generally, oh my god, dark episode in Voyager. Uh, funnily enough, the other one, which is also, you know, which is the number one, you know, the number one verse one, is in season five as well. So one thing I'll say about this episode, there's not a lot of behind the scenes on this one. Several of the people who made it uh, felt disappointed by the episode, which I find interesting, because I actually enjoyed this episode quite a bit. Uh, I will admit it petered out a bit during the latter half, and, well, let's just say that, like, I have an entire page worth of notes for the first half of the episode, and then two bullet points for the second half. So that probably says something about my opinion on that. And there's one thing they did that really pissed me off. But regardless, one of the things that was mentioned was that this is basically a classic Star Trek episode. And I actually kind of agree with that. Because the idea here is that it's ba it's it's a fairly basic monster of the week episode. It doesn't really tie into the overall arcs of the season or anything like that. Except in one way, which I'll talk about later. Um, so I feel like because they did do one thing right with regards to tying this into the rest of the season, it actually works, as opposed to just being a, a monster of the week that can be forgotten. Um, I also feel, again, that this is a very competently done episode, for reasons I'll be discussing as we go through. So, like I said, uh, my next note here is, you know, the horrors, most darkest, horrifying episode, etc., etc. Uh, it is not, like I said, the worst, but it is probably the grossest episode I've seen of Voyager. This is an episode where Voyager and its crew are basically being eaten alive um, by a biological thing. And that, that's, that's pretty gross to me. Uh, I will say this, there is a bit of a debate uh, behind the scenes as to whether or not this episode has anything to do with where silence has lease. Now, I know what you're going to be thinking, what the heck is that? I'll save you the time. It's a TNG episode. Season 1, it's an okay episode. It's not the worst of Season 1, uh, but it's not the best either. And I'm not talking about Nagilam particularly. What I'm talking about is what Worf says. Now, this is funny because this was just one of the first things that occurred to me when I saw this episode, because I have what uh, my mother refers to as trivial pursuit brain. In other words, I could remember tons and tons of incredible detail about things I probably shouldn't and nothing else. If you ever wondered why I became a lore runner, that's kind of why. <laughs> but so I'm dead serious. When this episode came out, when this episode came out, my first thought was, oh my god, this is just like that thing Worf talked about back in TNG. And it took me a while to figure out what, you know, to, to reference it and, and see that I was actually right. Because he mentions this old Klingon legend about entire ships disappearing in, into chunks of space and whatnot. And, like I said, there's some debate behind the scenes as to whether or not the pitcher plant, which is actually basically what this thing is called, was uh, a deliberate take on that idea, like actually showcasing it, or had nothing to do with it whatsoever, and it was just a coincidence. I don't think it matters either way. I just feel like bringing it up because, in my mind, it does kind of tie the two things in nicely, and it shows that Worf wasn't just crazy that day. He just sounded like he was crazy because it was season one, and Worf uh, didn't actually receive character development back in season one. God. So, I also want to give props to W. Morgan Shepard, 
I'm not sure what the W stands for or why it's there. Maybe it's just a stage name. I don't know. The gentleman has actually been in a few other Star Trek works, including uh, he played Ira Graves, again, back in early TNG. Uh, he was the gentleman who basically took over Data's body, if you don't recall. Uh, he also played the commandant, commandant, words, in uh, Star Trek VI, the gentleman in charge of Rura Penthe. And he will also play the jackass Vulcan minister in Star Trek 2009. Same guy. He does a really good job in this episode, and he adds a, a nice little bit of weight to his role. So good work on that. Good, good pick for him in the role of the would-be Ahab. Now, I love how well Tom and Seven get along with Naomi. It's nice to see a child actor on television that doesn't make you cringe. I've kind of talked about child actors before, and I will talk about them again when we get to the TNG episode, Rascals. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> I mean, we have to talk about it at some point, right? But it is nice to see a child actor who does a good job and who has a decent chemistry with the adult actors in the same scene. And again, Tom was just like, hey, you want to go, you know, want to learn how to pilot the ship? And there's just this natural, you know, fatherly thing going on there, which I like. Um, and, of course, Seven herself gets along with her well for reasons I've already discussed. And arguably this is probably the episode where the friendship and uh, coordination between Seven and Naomi is at its peak since it is basically their episode. This is also kind of a first. Uh, if you've been paying attention, we had a deluge of seven episodes right after she was introduced, because, oh my god, she's a popular. Quick, more, more! You know how that goes, right? But then not too long after that, we haven't really had a lot of seven-centric episodes in quite a while. This is the first one in a bit. Uh, I'm not complaining about that. I just think it's interesting, because this is also one of our... This is basically our first Naomi-centric episode. Now, I know Seven is still clearly the primary character here. In fact, one could argue the Doctor has as much relevance as Naomi does. But the fact that Naomi, a C-list cast member at best, who is also a child actress, has such a relevant role in the series is actually really awesome. And I love the fact that they pulled it off. It's a rare thing for any, any Star Trek that isn't Deep Space Nine to make a primary episode about such a, a ancillary character and make it work. Uh, again, Deep Space Nine actually did that several times. I'm serious. Watch Emissary again sometime and pay attention to Nog and then just shake your head. You know? Oh my god. Nog's not even the most severe example of that. But anyways. Um, so I love the slow shift of horror in this episode. I'm going to be talking about that uh, more in detail in just a second. But we start off with this skepticism. I mean, one of the first things we see is Janeway going... A wormhole? Like, with just, oh, yeah, right. Give me a break. Oh, and the wormhole leads right to Earth. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> she's not that obvious about it because she's actually an actress, and uh, I am not. But seriously, the, the, the sheer skepticism is all over her face. Just, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. And then it takes maybe two or three scenes for that to shift into, oh, my God, we found a wormhole, and we're getting pictures from Earth, and we're getting letters from home, and it's great. And the shift between the two isn't stark. I mean, I just portrayed it a little too stark. It could have been done slower. I think that would have been to the detriment of the pacing of the episode. But it was done well, nonetheless. We see that shift, especially when uh, when Seven goes and watches the, uh, the captain's logs from Janeway. And the first one is, we're being deceived, but we need to figure out why. The second one is... We've received messages from it, so maybe I was being overly skeptical. And the third one is, oh my god, it's a wormhole and it's totally real. You know, it's just the shift there is quietly horrifying. Uh, it's one of the things I like about this episode. Furthermore, uh, I find the trap of this episode fascinating. Because the creature does not actually mind control you. 
what it does is it, it it presents you with the idea of what you want most and you fill in the gaps and that's really quietly horrifying to me the idea that all it has to do is present you the idea the concept oh this is what you want and any dissension or any attempt to look around that is overlooked because of nothing more than wishful thinking that's it that's all you are so wanting this to be a thing you want it to be real that you basically go along and make it real and the way that they react to seven just really highlights that for me tuvok does this later on in the episode too she hits tuvok front in the face with logic and, and tuvok shuts it down that's not mind control that's tuvok doing that because he wants so badly for this to be true and i'll talk more about that in just a second um i oh apparently i'm talking about that right now because that's my very next note so i one of the, i mentioned how this episode isn't just in a vacuum uh, the way it is, is this episode informs the characters. And this is great. This is exactly what should be done. I've always said, you don't, continuity isn't just about every episode linking into the episode before and after. That's not all that continuity is. Continuity can be about themes, the overarching themes of a season or a series. It can be about the character development and the characterization. It can be about the overall setting and helping flesh the setting out. TNG actually had very strong setting continuity, even if it had very little other forms of continuity. Very strong character growth continuity as well you can do different forms of continuity um and i know i've broken this dead horse you know a few dozen times but the point is in this episode we actually learn a bit more about these characters what does janeway find out from the picture plant well mark's broken off the engagement now that actively doesn't fit because we know mark wasn't engaged he was married he moved on like it's been years like a couple years ago he she found out that he moved on and the fact that that is still in her mind says something. What do we find out about Chakotay? Very same scene. Uh, Anthropological, uh, he, he, full pardon. Reinstatement into Starfleet and professorship of anthropology. Really showcasing the kind of person Chakotay always has been. The, the kind of ch person Chakotay, I, I wish we'd seen more of. I've talked about this throughout the series, how I wished he'd had more character uh, time spent on him because we see in Chakotay someone who is a soldier in many ways a commander as I've called him before but someone who doesn't want to be and that's probably why he's such a good commander because he hates the job what is it he sees when he wants most he wants to go be a professor of anthropology and he wants to be back in Starfleet the peace-loving organization now, he doesn't know about the full extent of the Dominion War. He's aware that the Dominion War exists, but he doesn't know how bad things have gotten back home. But my point remains. What do we find out next? Uh, let's see here. I've got notes. I wrote everyone down. Uh, Neelix. Neelix is given a full ambassadorship on behalf of Starfleet. He has been recognized by these people, this, this organization he has come to idolize over the time of his uh, spending with Voyager, and they want him to be their representative to an, an alien races, and that would just be so... Uh, that's what he wants. It says so much about him. He doesn't want to be... He, he wants to be helpful. He wants to be useful. He wants to be recognized. What does Tom find out? He has been given a job test flighting, a test piloting brand new technology and brand new craft at, uh, I forget the exact location, I forgot to write it down, but, you know, a place on Earth so he can live at home and be with Bolana and have all that stuff, you know, blah, 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 blah. It says a lot about their characters, how much they want. Oh, by the way, they never say 
what Tuvok wants, per se. They, he never gets a letter, per se. But we do get to see what Tuvok wants very, very badly. And given that this is literally the episode after Gravity, I don't think that's incongruent. I know that sounds weird, but I mean that sincerely. After everything that happened in Gravity, he probably wants to be home with his my wife more than ever. He really truly strongly feels for her. We get that many times. So the idea that what he wants most is to see her again and be with her again makes perfect sense. I find this approach to horror interesting. Uh, let's talk about that in just a second. I want to talk about the Tuvok thing first here really quick. Uh, Tuvok buys into this as well. I just want to mention this because I've heard a couple of people, just a couple, say that that's bad writing. I don't agree personally. Now, the, the argu I'll go ahead and present their argument here, for the, for the interest of fairness. Their argument is Tuvok's a Vulcan, a real Vulcan, as we've discussed many times. He's, he's one of the two premier examples of a Vulcan in all of Star Trek. So how is it a true Vulcan is so susceptible to this thing? Now, granted, if anyone was going to resist this, like if Seven wasn't on the crew and the Doctor wasn't an option, Tuvok would probably be the option. Like if I was writing this episode and Seven and the Doctor weren't a variable, I would probably have Tuvok be the one who resists this, because mental discipline, right? But I don't think this is inconsistent. And I kind of already gave my reasons why. It is in my opinion that Tuvok, as all Vulcans are, has stronger emotions than we humans do. He just keeps them under control. And one of those emotions, paraphrased, is desire. I think he wants to go home so badly, to be with his wife so badly, to be done with his duties out here and the constant vigil he has to maintain out here and everything he has had to put up with, both both minor and major, out in the Delta Quadrant, he just wants to go home. It is possible Tuvok wants to go home more than everyone else does. So I don't think it's inconsistent. I don't think it's bad writing, is what I'm trying to say. Now, this style of horror is an interesting approach. I've actually talked before about the different approaches to horror. Um, the most obvious kind, and the one you see most often, is the audience is basically described as the audience knows nothing. The audience is finding out stuff as things are revealed to the audience. And therefore, most scenes are structured with the idea that the audience is being revealed stuff either parallel to or more often regardless of the characters in character. In other words, most of the time, the characters in character know what the audience does not. This is the inverse side of this, and this has also worked several times. I've talked about this uh, elsewise in writing and in uh, video games as well. The style of horror here is, we know what's going on, they don't. And so the audience is fully aware of how things are going to go badly, and that things are going to go badly, but not when. It creates a unique form of tension when you know things are going to, to descend, and when you know things are getting worse, and you realize that, oh god, this is horrible, and... The only question is when it's going to happen. You're just holding your breath. It's, it creates that sort of yelling at the screen concept. You know, oh my god, you idiot, no, don't go in there. That's where the thing is, you stupid. Um, you know, that kind of idea. I, uh, I, I, I find it a fascinating form of horror since it's so hard to write this correctly. But I feel like they did a really good job in this one. Because what's the first thing we find out is we see the, the pitcher plant. And the second thing we find out is the skepticism, as I mentioned earlier. So it is all over the place. There's no mystery here. There's no, oh God, what's going wrong? We know exactly what's going wrong. And we know it's going to go wrong. 
the tension, the 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 emotion of the episode, this, the horror, the the terror, whatever you want to call it, all comes from how and when and and you know watching the dominoes unfold, knowing that there's no stopping it. And uh, I find that to be an interesting approach. Um, and I have another note here that the actress who plays Naomi does an amazing job because she does. She really does a really really good job. It's it's a little crazy. Um, the then we have the single most horrifying section of the whole episode. This is pretty much at the halfway point. And as I mentioned, I have very few additional notes. So we're almost done here. So we reach the halfway point, and they go into the wormhole, aka the beast. And the music gets this beautific, wonderful affair, and everything goes light and bright and shiny. And this is really important. There's no dialogue. That is absolutely mandatory. It is perfect. I want to shake the hand of whoever made the decision to have no dialogue for those final blissful moments. Because there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be because in character there probably isn't. They, they, they are so, to use a simple term, blissed out that they can't even think in such a coherent fashion as dialogue at that point in time, to speak. Second of all, it fits the overall tone of how incredibly beautific everything is. Words are not necessary at that point. And thirdly, it helps to contrast the next thing that happens, because then we see what Voyager actually looks like. Dark, brooding, people strewn out everywhere, completely unconscious. Oh, and while we're on the subject, this is a rare episode where there's really good music in it. Like, really good music. I was astonished. I, I didn't even fully notice it at first, which I feel a little embarrassed by, but that's how really good music should be. You're not supposed to notice it. It's supposed to add to the scene without you fully being aware of it. And it did. The, the music for the beautific sections and the mu music for what's actually happening were wonderfully contrasting each other. Very, very nice job on that. Um, and like I said here, it's the halfway point of the episode when they're actually eaten. The rest of the episode is spent on them trying to solve the dilemma. Get out. It is all at that point. Seven, Naomi, uh, Morgan Shepard, I forget, I forget his character's name, and the Doctor. Four characters handle the entire rest of the episode. They do a really good job of it, and there's some great character dynamic there. And I really like, um, I really like the fact that it is logical that the creature would make that last attempt to, you know, to deceive them. You know, I want to get out, and that they can, uh, the, th the creature can actually work with that now, because rather than one person amongst fifty not wanting the same thing. Now it's one person amongst four who all want the same thing. And the only reason that, that the Doctor wasn't affected is because he's a hologram, and, and Morgan Shepard's character wasn't affected because he's built up that resistance to it. So Seven being affected to it is logical. One other thing I do want to say, though, is I hate the fact that they don't kill the creature. I'm sorry. I really am. But let's say in real life we found a beast, an animal with no demonstrable sentience or sapience, who is regularly murdering lots of people and has been doing so for a long time. And we have the choice to end this creature's life or get away. Now, I get it. I get that the doctor of all people would argue against doing that. But Seven and Morgan Shepard's character? Hell, even Naomi would probably be inclined towards simply killing the thing. This is like arguing against saving a volcano. 
Yes, it's alive, but the distinction doesn't matter at this point because whether it is cognizant of the fact that it is murdering other beings en masse in order to support itself it does not justify it. And that irritates the snot out of me because that is so typical Star Trek that it's, it's left a bad taste in my mouth after the, the, the 30 years of watching Star Trek. I get sick and tired of every, every now and again of them finding this horrible, murderous, terrible thing and trying to find the third option, trying to save this horrible, terrible, murderous thing. I get a good redemption story. I do. I get the tolerance story. I do. I feel it's a little overplayed in Star Trek, and sometimes I just get sick of it. And in cases like this, I mean, this is a f something straight out of Cthulhu Mythos, really. This is awesome, straight-up, screwed-up Lovecraftian crap right here. And they're arguing to save this thing's life instead of killing it. Really? Oh, it's okay. We'll put up some beacons warning people away from it. Uh-huh. <sighs> Keep in mind, we do know it can travel. That That's mentioned twice, actually, so... <sighs> there is one other thing I want to mention uh, before I go into my big spiel here. Uh, there's a section where the doctor is trying to awaken Bellana, and he increases. He's got this neural inhibitor on her, and she just starts talking to the Maquis crew member who are right there in front of her. You know, the ones who are dead because they were murdered by the Dominion. Um, and the the again, this goes back to the episode strength, the quiet horror of it. He uh, Morgan Shepard's character has a great line, and I wrote it down. It says, and I quote, "She doesn't want to." The doctor says, she's not listening to me. And he says, she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to face real life. She doesn't want to stare at how bad things are in real life. Trapped away from home with a struggling family and all her friends dead. She doesn't want to face that. She wants this to be real. The implication there, of course, is what I alluded to earlier. It's not mind-controlling its victims. It's holding a carrot in front of their face. And they want it so badly that they're willing to ignore their own minds and their own knowledge and logic in order to grasp at it. In fact, and I had this thought when the episode came out as well, what I'm reminded of more than anything is the Nexus in Star Trek Seven Generations. When I first saw Generations, I didn't talk about this much during my movie rumination, because first of all, I knew it would come up here, and second of all, I already had too much to talk about in that episode. Um, I always found the Nexus to be quietly horrifying, because it's the kind of thing that you don't want to resist. You don't want to fight back out against it. I mean, I, I have actually, I'm sure I'm not the only one. You know, this is the Harry Potter question. What would you see in the Mirror of Erised? Hmm. What would you see if you looked in that mirror? For those of you who know, know what I'm talking about, if those of you don't, just look at Generations. What would, what would your nexus be like? What would you see when you were in there? And I know what I would see, and I'm not going to share that with you. Um, but I, the question is just looming there. Would I be capable of resisting that? Because it's not about, like, like I, see, I'm asking the question wrong. That's how insidious this is. It's not about being able to resist it. Of course I could resist it. Of course they could resist it. Would I want to? Would they want to? Would anybody want to say no to what they really, truly want deep in their hearts? Would anyone want to turn away from being offered what they want most? 
I have actually wondered more than once if there isn't some kind of connection between the Nexus and the uh, the Pitcher Plant. I don't think there is, for reference. Because, um, well, I've already discussed why. It has to do with why Generations was kind of a mess uh, behind the scenes. I talked about that. But the similarities theme-wise are striking. The only difference is, in the case of the Nexus, there's no apparent malicious or malevolent intent, whereas in this case there is. And I know what you're going to argue. No, there isn't. It's just a beast. Go Shut up. <laughs> just just don't don't even go there, okay? This is a creature trying to kill other creatures to, to eat them, okay? That, in my book, qualifies as malevolent intent, even if it has no sentience or sapiens behind it. Moving on. So, again, that's the only real difference I see between the two. And... One of the greatest threats of being offered what you want most is the inability to do anything else ever again. You have what you want. What point is there in doing at that point? What point is there is striving? What point in there is in inventing or discovering or expanding? You have what you want, right? I think that's why I find the, the Nexus and the Bliss Creature so insidious. Because it's an extreme. I know, I talk all the time about extremes. I'm sorry. But it's true. It is an extreme. If we had what we want, but not everything we want, you know, so we can have happiness, we can have joy in our lives, we can accomplish what we desire, but then if we accomplish everything, if we take it to the extreme, well, then we just stop, don't we? I don't know. I've got nothing else to add here. I'm done. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week.